Do you remember what your college dorm room looked like during finals week? Or how about your toddler's toy room after a play date? If you're like most of us, both environments were a total chaotic disaster 99% of the time. And while a messy dorm room isn't catastrophic to your overall well-being, messy data can be to your institution's enrollment marketing strategy. Most admissions professionals are drowning in their data. They've got email metrics in one system, yield data in another, and social media profiling selects stuck on their desktop. What they need is a data strategy, a comprehensive roadmap that guides them on where, how, and when to spend money, and where, how, and when not to. They don't just need the data. They need to know how to leverage it to meet their enrollment goals. And that's what our partners over at Inroads Analytics do so well. Inroads Analytics is the leader in predictive analytics and data modeling in higher education, which is really just a fancy way of saying that they equip schools to make sense of all of the data points relevant to prospective students and offer clear insight into where an admissions team's time and money is best spent. Think of the Inroads Analytics team as a cross between Sherlock Holmes and Warren Buffett. They'll help you solve the mysteries and uncover the stories your data is telling, and then coach you on how to invest in a sustainable enrollment marketing strategy that maximizes ROI. Discover how Inroads Analytics empowers you with the strategic data that you need to recruit students more efficiently and effectively. Learn more about how to take the road best traveled at inroads.ai forward slash enrollify. Again, that's inroads.ai forward slash enrollify. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. Today, I have Janice Chang McConnell with me. How are you doing today, Janice? I'm doing well, Zach. Thank you for having me. I am very excited for our conversation, and we're going to be talking about several different things. And I am, it's funny, I feel like I've followed you on social media for some time now and have seen your your musings. Um, so it's nice to... <laughs> It's nice to finally get to have this, you know, chat, not in person, but uh, but over Zoom, face to face at least. It's I was about to say, um, it's really nice to hear your voice, um, not through I'm so used to hearing your voice through the podcast. But then now, like we're sitting, I mean, listeners can't see this, but we're sitting in front of each other via Zoom. And it's 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 weird, but I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> well, excited for uh, for our conversation today. So. I like to just kick things off with uh, helping folks get a little bit of a better sense of who you are and how you think. And so the question I've got prepped for you here is, if I were to go to a happy hour or a dinner with some of the people that are closest to you, and if I were to sit down with them and ask them to tell me a little bit about Janice, what do you imagine that they would say? I love this question, and I uh, took it took a while for me to think about because I'm not used to really thinking about myself in that way but I think my friends would tell you to order me a gin and tonic first because that's my favorite drink okay uh I think they tell you that I'm zero to 60 on anything that I find interesting um they warn you that I laugh too long at stupid (laughs) jokes uh and to never ever get me started talking about the Titanic I hope that they tell you that I'm a joyful person with a strong moral compass. I hope that they tell you that I'm grounded and scrappy 
and a self-starter. And my favorite thing is you tell me what you need and I will find a way to make that happen. Wow, that might have been the best answer I have ever received to this question. <laughs> and I've asked it to a fair number of people. So, uh, ooh, it's I, a good one. How do I not like ask you about the Titanic after that? Like, what, what, give well, me, give me like the two second hours. overview. <laughs> what, what, what's like the two, what's like the two to 10 second like little overview about what that means? I think everyone has their thing, you know, like the thing that you just deep dive on, you know way too much about it and you pull it out at cocktail parties, whether or not people are interested. And my thing is the Titanic. Um, I just, for some reason, I, I, I like ships and planes and big sort of um, transportation vehicles. uh, And Titanic is, is one of those things that I just, I'm, I wouldn't say passionate about because that's weird, but definitely curious about and still reading up stuff about it. Um, I believe there is a new type of bacteria that has been discovered on the Titanic that's slowly eating through the ship. So within the next decade, we're actually going to lose the ship entirely. Wow. It's going to be gone. Is that crazy? Well, yeah. I mean, hey, See? you know, they, <laughs> yeah, they say that you learn something new every day. And I don't know for me if that's like true every day, but today it is Mm -hmm. today it is that's incredible there you go um well hey that's a fun fact um next time i'm at a cocktail party and i have to come up with some random fun fact so i like that uh you never know where you're gonna learn i know rollify yeah exactly exactly exactly. all of our listeners like what are you guys talking about um so what we've discovered thus far is that janice is the person that has written the wikipedia page for the titanic that's what we've learned uh at this point in the conversation um well uh you know janice the holidays are just around the corner and um you know for some of us this will be the first time that we've got together with extended family in you know well over a year a couple years now in in many contexts and i feel Mm -hmm. like when you go to like a thanksgiving or like a, a holiday party you're inevitably going to like run into like an uncle or an aunt that you haven't, you know, talked to in years and they're going to mm-hmm. ask you about your job and how things are going and you know a lot of these people it's like a lot of times when family members ask you to explain like what you do at least for me I find it like I get tripped up I'm like oh well I mean I don't know for like, sure. I have a podcast I work in marketing I work in education and they're kind of like oh yeah okay and then like they don't <laughs> it's very clear that like they didn't get it so yeah if you were to explain to your friends and family um what it is that you actually do all day like how would you go about explaining your job I avoid it for the most part uh, because <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Taipei Taiwan and our education system particularly when it comes to higher education is very very different than the system here in the United States hmm. so my family doesn't always necessarily understand why you have to market higher education because it's more or less, um, I wouldn't say universal, that's not the right right term, but um, it's more or less a given that you go to college uh, in Taiwan. And, and, and it's not life-shatteringly, um, it's, not, it's not a life-ending thing if you don't. So it doesn't have as much of a, a consequence and mm. significance um, at least when I, I don't, I haven't been home in about 10 years, um, or haven't been living long-term in Taipei for about 10 years. So I'm not sure how that's changed within the last decade, but when I was growing up, that was sort of the, it's hard in East Asia to get into middle school and high school, but once you get into high school and you get into a good high school, it's, it's, um, your path is paved for you more or less. So having to, say that I work in enrollment and admissions and in marketing and communications for higher education institutions in the United States is something that 
my parents and my family have a hard time sort of grasping. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's like, well, if something's just like a foregone like conclusion of like everyone does this, or if you don't, it's not that big of a deal, then it does beg the question like, well, why would you need to market it, right? Like, why would you need to convince somebody to do something that is kind of like a foregone conclusion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super for interesting. Sure. Um, okay, well, one of the things I, I'm really excited for this conversation because one, obviously, when we first connected, I guess just about a week ago, and I learned a little bit more about who you are and what you do and what you're passionate about, and I just felt like we like jived really well together from that, you know, kickoff. And um, this is actually the first part of this little mini series that we're doing here at Enrollify that's really focused on professional growth and career advancement in and around higher education. And so, you know, while you're still very young, you've had a pretty like remarkable career in higher ed thus far. And so I'd love for you to take us back to the start. Like what was your very <laughs> first job um, in and around higher education and how did it evolve from there? Thank you. I, I don't know how remarkable it is, but I'm thank you for that. I started in higher ed as a fry cook, a fry um, cook. On, on one of the campus dining halls. I was a student. I was an undergraduate student at Binghamton University, and I started working at the late night university dining hall. And because we were one of the few places that opened till 2 a.m. I learned all about turkey melts and jalapeno poppers and chicken fingers, uh, <laughs> Philly cheese steaks, you name it. I made it uh, behind the grill. It was it was super fun, actually. I love that job. Wow. So you were working like <laughs> late nights, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. I assume sometimes yep. you encountered the occasional, you know, drunk college kid that was just starving. And so how, how does like, did that like, did that, ex- how did that experience sort of like affect the way that you thought about higher ed, if at all? It was working in dining services actually gave me a cool foundation for my higher education career um, because I got to see these students who are my peers um, in various different moments. I saw students who were studying real late, just coming back from the library, needed a cookie to soothe their spirits. I saw the drunk students who came back or pre-gaming students who are ready to get drunk. <laughs> I saw the students the next morning for pancakes um, at the same dining hall. And I think I, I, I'm very grateful to the jobs that I was able to do um, at the university dining hall, especially as an international student too. I didn't realize how many different types of cheese there were in the United States. So I started working with the deli line. It, <laughs> It really was a cool um, gateway into American culture um, and allowed me to, yeah, learn all about that and learn how to talk to people. Um, It was my first real adult job. So, you know, um, I later on became a student manager and it just taught me a lot about professionalism and what it meant to work while you're studying and the type of experiences that these students are going through even today. Students would have to put themselves through college, um, working multiple jobs while going to school full time um, and helping me being able to think about things from their perspective. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know that in several other countries, the way that higher education works, is it's less of like this, like big immersive experience where you kind of like move away, you go and you live on campus, oh, for sure, and yeah. you, you, mm-hmm. you know, your entire life is like, like campuses called like universities and colleges in the US are kind of like little like mini like town centers, if not like little mini cities, right in and of themselves. For sure. And I know that's not the case mm-hmm. in uh, 
uh, several other parts of the world. Was that the case in, in Taiwan or was like this idea of you being like immersed in this little sort of like microcosm of the human experience? Was that was that like pretty like new to you or what was that normal back in Taiwan? It's new to me as far as I understand. Um, there are various types of institutions that you can enroll in in Taiwan that some of them a little bit more similar to the American experience, but I would say uh, colleges and universities going to school and having your parents pack the van, move in day, and then getting to know people on the same floor, RAs, those are, um, for me, very uniquely American. I'm not sure how it works for uh, institutions around the world, but um, that was something that I had to get used to. Yeah, sure. yeah, wow, gosh. A lot, lots of change, not just like leaving you, your home country, but coming in, uh, immersing yourself into an entirely different uh, uh, East Coast sort of like environment and, you mm -hmm. know, many little uh, city of uh, in and of itself where mm -hmm. you lived, you worked, you went to school. Um, so, you know, after you are finished flipping pancakes and making Philly <laughs> cheesesteaks, you end up going on to continue your, your career post-graduation in higher ed. Um, and since then, you've worked at state schools and community colleges and larger private schools. And I'm curious mm -hmm. if you can just like unpack uh, one or two things that you loved about each of these opportunities and, and, and perhaps, you know, a couple of things about these particular posts that were that were challenging or, or, or less than ideal just to help us get a better sense of like what you learned and, and what you loved and, and what was hard about these various jobs that you've held. Yeah, um, Zach, you've spoken with many folks who work at higher education. And so I don't think this will come as a surprise to you. Uh, what I love about working at in higher education and what I hate about working in higher ed are the same across the institutions. No matter where I went, they're, they're the same. I love working with students and people who care about students. I hate bloated leadership administration structures. I hate um, sort of the glacial experience of being a professional in higher ed. You can't advance, you can't go back. Everything is kind of always the same. Um, and I've consistently experienced both in mm. the different institutions that I've worked at. Wow, full stop there, huh? Um, no, that that's a that's a that's a really interesting um, way of kind of summing it up. So I'm curious when you were working at a state school, right? Um, what was there any sort of like aspect of you know the bureaucracy there that was especially mm -hmm. helpful or hurtful or like talk to us a little bit about sort of like the nuances that did exist in these in these different environments, right? And you've probably you're you were probably working in schools with that had larger budgets for marketing and recruitment um and then mm -hmm. other schools with significantly smaller budgets for marketing and recruitment and yeah. like what differences did you did you notice about those environments and how did it affect the way that you worked my experience at wells college which was a tiny liberal arts college was that even though we didn't have as many resources to do things, we had a lot more say in mm. how we did projects. We, I remember um, asking for a camera because we didn't have a campus photographer and we didn't have capacity to have someone engage full-time or even part-time to do campus photography. But obviously we needed photos and all sorts of other creative assets. So I asked for a camera, got it. And then it was just me and my camera going around campus, taking photos, 
attending events when I could, and then using those photos um, in marketing campaigns, building our digital viewbook, or putting them into our 360 campus tour. So I was able to be part of a process at a smaller school from beginning to end. Um, and at a larger school, like where I am now, um, things are much more structured mm. and there are, this is your lane, this is what you do. And then once you finish that part, you pass it down the assembly line to the other department that does that thing. And then the next team does their piece, which is not necessarily good or bad. It's just a different type of structure. And that is probably um, something that stood out to me the most is how differently projects are conceived and finished. Um, and how much stake people have in that process because of the silos that exist at larger institutions. Um, it's harder to move projects forward. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I have found to be true as I've talked to a number of folks uh, in the industry that I've worked in, like, a wide variety of contexts is it does, mm -hmm. folks often talk about sort of like their favorite leaders, um, individual, like attributes that different leaders that they have worked for have had that have, you know, impacted their their career, made their job actually uh, a little bit more easy, easy to execute, right? Easy to sort of like arrive at right. some form of success within the context of, of their role. So I'm curious, like right. you've probably, you've worked on a number of different teams, probably for, uh, with a number of different like leaders. What sort of attributes sort of stand out to you when you think about like leaders that really led well, that like empowered you, that enabled you to kind of, you know, do your job in the way that you thought you should do your job? I think instinctively my answer is distance. Hmm. The distance between a campus leader and their community, whether that's staff or faculty or students. I think when, when people think about good leadership, effective leadership, they your mind goes to a seven step type of thing or yeah. certain characteristics. But I think um, a lot of times your community just needs to hear from you mm. and see you walking around and know that you care about their work and know that you know their names. Mm. Um, in the institutions that I've worked at, I've seen personally that even though sitting down and having a town hall with staff members may not seem like a lot of time out of your schedule. It may not seem like you got a lot done during that hour, but your staff saw you, was able to hear from you, was given a space to say, hey, this is a barrier for me, or hey, I'm, I'm really struggling with this lately. Whether that's, it doesn't even have to be a town hall, it could be a one-on-one, -on -one. as long as you are showing your team that you're paying attention to mm. their needs and you are taking stock of what's happening, that, I think goes leaps and bounds for your, your team and our productivity. And essentially with higher ed, you always talk about turnover, right? Yeah. Just the lack of to help turnover with that. Um, yeah, that's, that's very well said. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Um, I, I, I'm thinking about this right now, so maybe I'll get slapped for saying this, but that'll be okay. Um, <laughs> I like, when I think about folks who work in hired and the people that I've encountered, I feel like most people fall into like one of two camps. Now, again, this is a generalization, right? So bear with me here, but you're either in this, like, you know, you're, you're here to kind of push papers to do the bare minimum to get by mm -hmm. and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, keep 
growing slowly at the rate that you're growing. And, and you know, this is a, this is a transactional job for you. Like this is not, mm-hmm. this is no, this is nothing significantly more than a paycheck. Now I would argue that there's not a lot of people that fall into that category, but you know, there are, there are folks that kind of fall into that category that, or they've achieved mm-hmm. a certain sort of like level of leadership and they're, they're kind of cool to just coast now. Right. It's like they, they mm-hmm. put in their time, right. In, in many For ways, sure. it, it's sort of a, it, it's kind of like the federal government. It's like you put in your time, you've done your due deal to you, you've done your due diligence, you've worked your way up and now it's time to like, it's not now it's time for other people to do the work. Right. Um, but the other group in higher ed, right. Which I think is of, of the people that I've talked to by and large, more, most of them fall into this category is like, this very like entrepreneurial spirit of like, hey, I've got little to no resources. I've got like <laughs> maybe no marketing budget. Um, but to your earlier point, I'm walking around the campus with my camera. I am taking photos. I am talking with students. I'm trying to be uh, a face at these events. Like I am, I'm being scrappy. I'm trying to understand everything that I can understand about where marketing budget is going and why it's going that way, what friction points mm-hmm. exist sort of in the student's uh, journey to enrollment so that I can remove those points of friction. Um, and mm-hmm. and I, I find that like when I talk with folks in, in higher ed, there's this, there is this like entrepreneurial vibe about them, which is, which I'm, you know, very much gathering from you. Um, and so it's, it's, it's super interesting because like, I think that while the journey of an admissions counselor, the journey of somebody working in marketing and communications at a college and university could seem like very different than the journey of somebody who is raising money for, you know, their startup or, or leading Mm -hmm. a team, um, uh, uh, leading their, their startup where, where I feel like there are these synergies is that there's a, there's a lack of resources. You kind of need all hands on deck. People are wearing like multiple hats. Um, Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to more often than not meet a particular goal that seems like pretty out of reach, right? Like increasing enrollment by 10% with no new Mm -hmm. investment of time, money, or resources seems impossible, Mm -hmm. right? Like how do you overcome those odds? So this is, this is a long way of asking a relatively simple question to you, but like, when you think about higher ed, like what is it that you love most about it? And like, what, what is it that has kept you working in this industry in spite of like the challenges and in spite of, I'm sure the amount of turnover that you've seen of your own colleagues, your own peers, right? What, mm-hmm. what keeps you going? What keeps you excited about being a part of higher ed? I think while there are many characteristics that set higher ed apart from other fields and industries, we are at the end of the day, just another job. And whether you are 25 or 45, whether you are a resourceful individual or you're just here for the resume boost, um, we're all on this journey of self-discovery of realizing what it is that we wanna do for the rest of our life or for the next three to five years and what it is that we absolutely do not want to do. So I think there has to be a balance between, because you can't, you can't ask people to work in a startup environment on a higher ed salary. Yeah, with, or, yeah or, or with no upside, right? It's like, right, it's, right. And that's, your that's school why, is not going to go, it's not going to IPO. <laughs> right, that's right. And that's that's why so many entrepreneurial uh, higher ed professionals who are maybe at the beginning of their career and, and are, you know, um, have a lot of ideas and, and gumption and energy to change, to lead change and to do things differently, they burn out. 
yeah. because they don't they're they're met with resistance on campus and in, within the institution from people who have worked there for a while have now worked their way up into leadership positions and who very understandably are now saying I, I'm here and I'm here to stay and I'm gonna do my best in some days most days my best looks like the minimum and that it's what I can do so it, there's this conversation that is happening um especially among my peers uh of what work means to you hmm. and what your relationship with work and what you want out of work. So while I feel very proud of my career and my portfolio so far, I also know the toll that it took on me yeah. emotionally and mentally. And so um, when I have a bad day though, when I am frustrated at the inevitable bureaucracy within higher ed, when I there's a project that's going nowhere, one thing that I like to do is remember the people. Hmm. So I walk around campus. If I'm able to walk around on campus, I look at the physical monuments and the other stuff that exists in this space. Um, so for example, at Syracuse University, there is a section of campus called the Orange Grove. And there's, there are these granite pathways. And uh, for I'm sure a small donation, you can etch your names and a short message onto these, these path stones. Hmm. Um, and one of the ones, I still remember says four generations and counting. And the first name of the first Syracuse University graduate graduated at like 1901. So can you imagine a hun over a hundred years of a family trusting one place with one of the most important chapters of their family's lives? Mm. And that hits me in all of my emotional buttons and reminds me that there is a physical and an emotional quote unquote space that each institution represents for the people. Um, and it makes me, it reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, it reminds me who I'm ultimately doing it for. Um, and just how cool is that? Yeah. You know? Oh, that is, that's beautiful. Um, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm on the verge of tears. That was so well said. Um, <laughs> no, but, but, but seriously, I think that, um, that that's such an interesting kind of practice too of like hey when the going gets tough uh changing your environment and getting, going for a walk outside and reminding yourself oh wow like stepping into the quad you know walking through the student center oh this is why i'm here like this is why i'm doing uh what i do this is this is this is what i love but you know at the, at the end of the day too it's like you have uh your goals of how you want to grow and how you want to develop and so Let's say that you did decide, hey, I really want to, I want to stay in higher ed and I want to be a VP. I want to, maybe you want to be a president one day, right? Like what, when you think about leadership in higher education, like what are some things like if you assumed some, uh, some uh, noteworthy post where you did have the ability to lead not just a team, but teams of people, like what do you think are some things that you would do or try to do or um, th that might be a little bit different, um, or, or that might sort of empower people to stay in higher ed longer, as opposed to, you know, jumping out every couple, you know, after a couple years of like really, really giving it their all and then just kind of burning out. Like, I guess another way of phrasing this question is what advice would you give to leaders who don't want to burn their teams out or don't want to burn their people out? That's a great question. I think leadership is a double-edged sword because 
the better you are at it, the better your team members become and the more opportunities become available to them to go elsewhere. Mm. And I think Ooh, that's good. Turnover. <laughs> I think turnover is good. I think um, higher ed is in a unique place where you get to train a generation of student affairs, student oriented professionals who are there to do what's best for students and whoever, whoever that looks like, uh, whatever that looks like for the school. And And if they're really good and they have a good opportunity that is right for them, that is not within the, the institution, let them go so that you can continue to train more people. Because yeah. there will always be people who say, this is it. This is it for me. I, I love it here. I love what I do. I'm happy with how much I'm making. Uh, I love the community. I will be here for a while. Yeah. And those are, those are your champions. Um, and then there will always be new blood and there will always be people who realize, wow, traveling 40 weeks out of the year, <laughs> talking to 17 year olds is really not what I want to do, but that was cool. Um, help them. Yeah. Push them forward. I think that's okay. Um, I just don't, I think turnover without reflection, without internal leadership review of what's happening to cause the turnover, that's bad. Mm. Oh, so well said, Janice. Uh, you're just, you're just <laughs> hitting it. Uh, you uh, believe I didn't write that down? Yeah, no, I love this. This is this is all just just for our audience too. I, I'm going like way off script. I gave Janice a couple questions, that, and now we're we're all over the place, which is which is what I like oh, to you're do. Asking all the different all the different questions. Yeah, all yeah. Questions. But no, I, I I really love that. And actually, it reminded me of this. I don't know if you saw this, just like a semi-viral post that was going around on LinkedIn, uh, maybe last yeah. week or the week before, but of this guy working at Amazon who was talking about uh -huh. sort of like professional development, right, and talking about like yeah. his direct report and this particular story he told of how if we're serious about professional development if we're serious about leadership like the expectation should be to make somebody better than ourselves and if we do that that person should be paid more that person should have a uh, a more senior title than us they should the expectation should be that they go and do something else like if you've done your job well of making somebody developing somebody so that they are even better than you are at doing that job your expectation mm -hmm. should be that at some point you're going to help them, you know, go on their way. And so this, how, how this story sort of unfolds is this Amazon guy, uh, this uh, senior manager ends up going and helping his direct report find a new job that was making more money than he was making in a more senior and more uh, prestigious sort of like position. And mm. for him, it was like this like really interesting, like reflective moment of like, whoa, I, I think I actually did this thing. I think I actually like led and helped somebody mm -hmm. like grow. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was just, just really like interesting sort of like conception of we talk about leadership, we talk about professional development, we talk about one-on-ones, we talk about the importance of developing our people all the time. And I actually think higher ed talks about this, not enough. Uh, and, and you know, talk is cheap, right? But at mm -hmm. the same time, th th there is some talking about it. I think the difference is like, whoa, are you actually prepared as a leader to invest enough in Janice so that, you know, she is better than you are at the very job that you do and mm -hmm. which will probably mean that unless you're going to retire and she's going to take your job she's going to go find that job elsewhere like unless you until you're mm -hmm. prepared to do that and really do that well like i don't know one could argue that maybe you're not doing a great job at professionally developing your people i think higher ed is so small that positivity cascades and it will come back 
in in unfathomable ways mm. and in when you least expect it even so i think if you can if you can train really good staff members and fac- and faculty members and allow them build networks for them to go branch out and expand it'll come back in certain ways and i think um i i have a, a very wise mentor um she her name is kishin zuber and she's the vice president of enrollment and marketing, I believe, is her very long title at Wilkes University right now. Um, and she um, has been one of the most influential people in my career so far. And she once told me that even if the students we recruit, this is when we back when we worked at Wells together, even if the students we recruit don't come to Wells College, even if we are able to get students to think about higher education as an opportunity that is available to them, they don't have to take it, but it's it's there and they can this is what it looks like if they go down this path even if we change the mind of one student and change the life of one student through this way then our work will have been done and I always remember that she told me that years and years ago and I will always remember that our mission is not my mission is not to recruit more students for the university I work at my mission is to recruit more students to higher education because there are many students who can benefit from that in their lives. And if it's not for you, it's not for you, but, um, and we want to trust in our audience enough that they know, um, they know how to take the next step, but we should, we should educate them well enough for them to do that. Oh gosh, you just, you just keep nailing it. I, this is, this is so well said. (laughs) This is is like so well said. It's, it's obviously so genuine because it's all like, it's all, uh, off the cuff here. Um, I'm about but, to cry. Yeah, yeah, I know. Gosh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it might be time for a drink. I don't know. Um, I <laughs> might need to go get a gin and tonic. Um, but no, but uh, just a couple of final questions for you. Uh, first yeah, is yeah. around for for folks who are thinking about leaving higher ed. Like, what encouragement or or words of advice would you have for them? Yes, I've been looking forward to this question because a few years ago. I wanted to move on from a position that was no longer right for me, but I was too scared. So I saw a tweet by Dr. Josie Alquist, and that night I applied to the job that I have now. So I'm going to share this tweet with you and the listeners um, as words of advice. Whether or not you're thinking of leaving higher ed, you're thinking of leaving your university, or just hopping from one side of campus to the other. Dr. Josie Alquist said, you are more than enough right now. Apply, leave, negotiate, dream. It's very simple, but it's very powerful for me. And I still obviously think about it regularly. Thank you, Josie. Um, And whenever I look at the trajectory of my professional career and I start feeling that guilt of, oh, this school invested in me, this leader invested in me. I have a really good relationship here. I'm very comfortable here. Whenever I get in that hole, I think about, no, apply, leave, negotiate, dream. Mm. So well said. So well said. Oh, that's a good <laughs> one. That's a good one. Yeah. Shout out to Dr. Josie. Um, yes. Go follow her on Twitter. Yeah. She's a great follow. She's a great follow. Um, 
So well said. So last question for you then is, you know, what about the other side of things? So, uh, you know, for folks who are listening to this, we have, we have a fair number of folks who listen to this podcast who are working uh, at a marketing agency or a software company that serves higher ed. So like a CRM company or a, a branding agency, and they work mm-hmm. exclusively with uh, folks like you, right, uh, who are mm-hmm. uh, inside, um, inside higher ed. And so for folks that are thinking about entertaining the possibility, they've been working with a lot of clients uh, in higher ed for a while. They understand the friction. They understand the challenge. And they, they have the audacity to think that, like, they could come in and, like, change things or they could come in and, like, <laughs> make things better. Like, And if they're seriously considering taking up a post as a director of admissions or director of marketing at a college or university, yeah. like, what, what pieces of advice do you have for them? I've never worked at an agency or at uh, a higher ed adjacent partner, Um, but I imagine that with the number of clients that you serve, uh, with the number of projects that you're a part of every year, it's hard to get to know one institution really, really well. So when you do do decide to join uh, an institution, one of my favorite ways of getting to know a community is attending all the big events. So go to orientation, go to student, new student orientation, go to commencement, go to whatever weird dance is happening. <laughs> go <laughs> go uh, walk around the student union at lunchtime where there are a lot of tables and clubs doing tabling, talk to those students. I think even if you don't personally know anyone at those events, the, the energy, the sheer enthusiasm, um, of those spaces will really help guide your work, um, especially all the, the conversations that you'll be part of or just listen to. Just go and eavesdrop. Go to the Campus Cafe and eavesdrop what the students are talking about, what's important to them, what's on their minds. And um, I know that that's not very practical or like a, a three-step plan um, for how to work at a higher ed institution, but I would say start there. Um, get to know the community and that you are working for and understand its quirks, because I do think that the common joke is that all higher ed institutions are the same, right? Especially in marketing. But I do think each institution is different. Um, I think that there are certain cultural nuances and traditions. um, And every student who is going through an institution is going through it for the first time and are having an experience that's entirely their own. Yeah. So put yourself in that space and you know, we can we can talk about the technicalities of all students who transfer and students who experience more than one. You know, that's that's all fine and good. But for a an eighteen year old or for a uh, an adult learner who's coming back to school who's taking a chance, um, put yourself in their shoes. Yeah, and walk through the student union. <laughs> I love that. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, immersing yourself into the environment that you are hoping to become a part of. That's the best way to learn about the environment, right? And make sure that make sure that you you know, uh, like it and make sure that it resonates with you before you before you go and market it to the world. Because uh, if you're not yeah. sold, right, nah, no one no one that you're right. going to be talking to is going to be sold either. Um, right, right. Well, Janice, this has been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to chat with us and share your story, share a little bit about sort of your lessons learned over the years. If folks want to learn a little bit more about you and um, want to just get a better understanding, maybe even connect with you and ask you a couple follow-up questions about how you decided to move, when you decided to move, et cetera. What's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, so I uh, am on Twitter at dear underscore preferred. Um, my full name is Janice Chain McConnell. Um, I am also highly active um, through 
higher ed professional organizations like High Ed Web. Um, I'm actually part of the conference committee this coming year in 2022. So if you're in any of those spaces, find me there. I'd be happy to connect. High Ed Web has a Slack also. Um, so yeah, pretty much anywhere, um, I'm happy to chat. Wonderful. And we will go ahead and make sure that we link your uh, Twitter, your LinkedIn, all that fun stuff um, below in the show notes so folks can follow you and connect with you uh, easily. But thank you so much for your time. And for, and for our listeners, hey, this is the first part of our little mini series here on jobs inside and around higher education. And um, we, Enrollify, just launched a brand new jobs board called Enrollify Jobs. And this bo- jobs board features marketing and admissions jobs inside and around higher ed. So if anything Janice said struck a chord with you and you feel like it's time to maybe think about something a little bit different or consider that next step, head on over to enrollify.org forward slash jobs and you can um, browse open uh, open jobs. So thank you so much, Janice, uh, again, for your time. It's been a privilege and looking forward to staying connected. Zach, you should tell them about the best part about the jobs board. Oh, the best part. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, little tip. <laughs> the best part about the jobs board is that every job posting will have the salary associated with that job and or a salary range if the exact salary can't be determined. So it's a niche jobs board. It's not going to have thousands and thousands of jobs, but it's going to have hundreds of jobs that are the most important jobs um, because they are institutions and companies that care about posting salaries and making it a little bit easier to understand what you're getting into before you spend all this time applying for the job. So um Yes, thank you for that little tee up, uh, Janice. <laughs> really, really appreciate that. So you can click the link too in the show notes before, uh, below as well and check it out. Thank you for having me. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to, digital resource for enrollment marketers out there.